Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. With the wall of water on their right and on their left, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so Moses, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing for, toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servants. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a quick reminder before uh, before we pray that uh, this next Sunday uh, we're going to uh, to be thinking a lot about moms, and uh, it's a, a day in our nation that has been set aside to think about mothers and the roles, the all kinds of roles that they play in our lives to make us the kind of uh, humans that we are. It is uh, a role that cannot be uh, replicated in any other way. Everyone has a mom, and we want to uh, we want we want to make much of moms this this next week in the way that God has created the economy of being a human being. And we're going to have two assemblies because we're asking you uh, over the last couple of weeks and in the week to come to invite uh, families, moms. Of all ages, they can have uh, one kiddo, uh, they can be ready to have a kiddo, uh, they can have 50 kiddos, and we want them to be here, and we want to bless them and to, and to remind ourselves of the greatness of what it means to be a mom. And uh, so we're going to have an assembly at 8 o'clock, and we're going to have an assembly at 10.30 with regular Bible class in between beginning at 9.15. And just a reminder, if you have uh, small kiddos that typically go to Sparks, we are going to have Sparks next week, but only in the 10.30 assembly. And so we look forward to a huge crowd, 8 o'clock and at 10.30. Let's pray. Dear Father, we want... To respond to you as, as creatures to our powerful Creator, as sons and daughters to a loving and perfect Father, as sheep to a protective shepherd. In this moment, Father, 
we seek to be in awe of you. As this story comes back into our consciousness, while we hear it once again and are reminded of your sovereignty in all the universe. And we ask because we desperately require it. Help with our dullness, light for our blindness, bread for our hunger, and water for our thirst. To this end, we pray in the name of Jesus to grant us eyes and ears to discern your word. And it is in the name of our Messiah Jesus that we pray and everyone said. Over the years, you've heard me reference a name from time to time, uh, Dallas Willard, one of the best-known writers in the area of spirituality, what it means to be a discipline of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I've quoted him in sermons, quoted him in classes, have given many of you his books that you have read. He's a tremendous thinker. Not only was he a writer in the area of religion and spirituality and uh, the, the spiritual disciplines and these kinds of things, but he spent half a century as a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California at USC. This man was no little thinker, no little intellect. And uh, on May 8th, 2013, just a couple of days from the, the fifth anniversary of his death, he, uh, he had discovered that he had cancer and, and just died a couple of days after that. And there was a piece that was written about him in Christianity Today by John Ortberg, another name that you know, and some of you are very familiar with his writings, wrote a, an op-ed piece that turned out to be more of an obituary for Dallas Willard. And he wrote in the piece about a game that he and Dallas would play over the years that would begin with the words, Hey, Dallas. And Orberg would say something like, Hey, Dallas, what is the meaning of spirit? And Dallas Willard would respond that it's unembodied personal power. He would say, What is, uh, what is your definition of spiritual maturity? And Dallas would say, the mature disciple is one who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. One day he wrote, he said, uh, hey Dallas, what is reality? And Dallas said that uh, reality is what you can count on. And then he said, hey Dallas, what is, uh, what is pain? And Dallas thought for a moment and he said, pain is what you experience when you bump into reality. I think that's true at a couple of different levels. First, I think it is profoundly naive on our part as people who say that they know God and know the scriptural teachings about the, the character and the nature of God in all of the universe. I think it's profoundly naive to think that we can come together as the body of Christ and worship God, that we can rub shoulders with God, who is the ultimate reality, without being bruised from time to time. And secondly, as a human being, to not recognize God as the ultimate reality can bring devastating pain. Which brings us to the text for our study this morning. The parting of the Red Sea is one of the most famous and recognized stories in all the Bible. It is also one of the greatest collisions 
with reality. At, at one level, it's this exhilarating rescue from a cruel and brutal life. 430 years of slavery and oppression, meanness, and a rough life. At another level, it's deeply sad because we see in this story that the cost of human arrogance. Arrogance, so many times, it's oftentimes the author of so much sad and needless collateral damage. Would you agree with that statement? Maybe we should put it on a t-shirt. Arrogance is oftentimes the author of such sad and needless collateral damage with other human beings. I mean, just ask the neighbors of Dr. Frankenstein. Last week, we left Moses and the sons of Israel with the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And to get our minds kind of back into what it is that we're studying in Exodus, let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. At the end of the chapter, Pharaoh and all of his officials, beginning in verse 30, and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and to leave the country, for otherwise they said, We will all die. And on that day, 604,000 men, plus their wives, plus all of their children, left after 430 years, Egypt. They left with articles of silver and gold, with large herds of livestock and, and flocks. Nearly four and a half centuries, verse 40, of slavery has come to an end. And Moses himself is carrying the bones of Joseph who goes all the way back to how Israel entered Egypt in the first place back there at the end of Genesis. But at the end of the next chapter, verse 13, we read two interesting kinds of things. Starting in uh, verse 17, God does not lead the sons of Israel as they're leaving Egypt for the promised land. He does not lead the sons of Israel by the Mediterranean coast, which, if you look at a map or a globe, is the most direct line between Egypt and the promised land. And then in verse 18, the very next verse, the Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Some of the other translations say that they left in a martial fashion or in martial array, meaning military. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. They're marching. Although not absolutely sure to the exact pinpoint locations of, of Pi Hahirot and Baal Zephon and the sea and, and, uh, and Migdol, God, it appears, has taken the people into a cul-de-sac. They've left Egypt, and they've gone right into the middle of a cul-de-sac. There's a mountain range on one side. There is a desert on the other. There's the sea in front of them. And it's no wonder, once Pharaoh hears about that, that he has this change of heart. Now notice chapter 14, verse 5. These are the people who have left Egypt that he's, he's hearing about, the Israelites, the sons of Israel, who have left marching like an army. 
the intel comes back to him this way. He was told that the people had what? Fled. And Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? Because they also know that they have gone into this cul-de-sac. We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Now think about just for a moment this Pharaoh. Pharaoh has suffered the most devastating and comprehensive defeat that he could ever try to imagine getting his mind around. But that pride and that, that hubris is just one of the greatest liabilities for a human being. And like we said earlier, arrogance is oftentimes the author of so much sad and needless collateral damage. Egypt is not done suffering. And so he gathers 600 of his best chariots, along with all of the other chariots that he could muster throughout the land of Egypt. He gets all of his officers, his troops together. He gets his cavalry. And with a heart that has been steeled once again, has been hardened and toughened once again, coupled with a lust for some Hebrew blood, he pursues for revenge the sons of Israel. Now, someone, we, we don't know who it is, at the back of the Hebrew entourage making its way into that cul-de-sac, looks back and they see a huge cloud of dust coming toward them with amazing rapidness. It's coming hard and fast. And when it gets close enough, they recognize that it's the Egyptian military might that's chasing them down, and they cry out to God. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, that is so unexpected. I mean, Moses has, you know, jaw just bouncing on the ground that the people would say this. But notice that he doesn't consult God, neither does he fall down in the fetal position. But he looks, the 604,000 men and all of their wives and all of their children, and he says, this is what you need to do. You need to not be afraid, stand firm, and watch and be, be still as God does his stuff. All you're going to need to do is stand there and watch and shut up. Then God says to Moses, and is this not weird? Then God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Get a move on. The angel in the pillar cloud wheels around and gets between Israel and the Egyptian army. It becomes dark on the Egyptian side. It's light on the Hebrew side. And in language that is reminiscent of the first two chapters of Genesis, God breathes into or onto the sea this strong east wind as Moses is stretching his hand out and the waters begin to separate. And the people pass through the water led by a man who 40 years earlier had been saved from water, and it is on the other side that a new nation is birthed. 
The people pass through and God throws the Egyptian army into confusion. As the water starts moving back, the wheels of the chariot become stuck in the mud. Literally in the Hebrew it says that God removed the wheels from the chariots. Which I take to mean that as the the chariot wheels became stuck in the mud, they were broken off at the axle and completely disabled as those horses were trying to get away and trying to move forward. And at some point, the Egyptian army realizes that the... I started to say the tide has turned against them, but that would be so gratuitous. (laughs) The Egyptian army realizes what's happening and is absolutely terrified. And they try to go back to the shore, but Moses at daybreak stretches out his hand once more and the waters go back to their normal place From the text as we read it, it appears that it starts to return along the shoreline closest to Egypt. And as it closes, it moves towards the center of the sea, effectively destroying the Egyptian army. And the text ends with these words. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, The people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. The time we have left, I want us to consider a question, a principle, and a truth. The question is this. Do we wait to trust God until we know what God is doing? Do we hold back our trust and confidence and reliance in God until we know what He's doing. The people say, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone. Let us live our lives. Stay as slaves in Egypt. Do we wait to trust God until we know what He's doing? That is just a gigantic question. It's the big question. Now there are a couple of little smaller ones in there as well that are uh, connected. Why did the people accuse God after ten plagues of experiencing those ten plagues, of seeing the power of God? Why did the people accuse God after ten plagues experience of mild intentions? Why did they not just simply, another small question, why did they not just simply ask for the eleventh plague? I wonder if anyone decided that the best course of action was to stay on the shore and to fight the Egyptians. The issue for our faith is not us always knowing what God is doing, but trusting that God knows what He's doing. Sometimes we're a lot like Jonah, who wants to jump on a ship going the opposite direction that God has been sending him. Or sometimes we're like Peter, who says, Jesus, this this idea of you being crucified on a cross is absolutely the most ridiculous thing that I have ever heard in my life. Only to hear, get thee behind me, Satan. 
It's here that a very dangerous trend for Israel's relationship with Yahweh begins. This, in chapter 14, is the first in a whole series of faith-damaging murmurings or faith-damaging grumblings on the part of Israel questioning the motives and the wisdom of God. There is absolutely no record of them saying, leave us alone, we want to stay slaves in Egypt. I don't believe they said it. I don't believe they said it, but I do believe that in their hearts, in that moment, they had come to believe that it was true. And this grumbling against God is saying, God, we do not trust you in light of everything we have seen. You think about a marriage, for an instance, or any kind of a, of a relationship where people are just really tight and they're really close. What is one of the most insulting, hurtful things that you can say to someone? I know you, but I don't trust you. To say that is to give God a vote of no confidence. To do that is to blackball God's character and in, in presence in all the universe. Now, people who, who struggle with the, just the entire concept of God do this every day. But it becomes a tremendous faith liability when the people who say that they represent God give Him a vote of no confidence. And their grumbling against God is not just saying, God, we don't trust you. It becomes, at the same time, a rewriting of their faith experience. By disconnecting God's love and His compassion and His mercy and, and His providing His providence from their history with God. And this is not going to be the only time that they do this. You go two more chapters down the road, Exodus chapter 16. They begin to grumble again, and they begin to murmur, and they completely misremember everything that was happening to them for 430 years in Egypt. And they say, wow, you have really done us a disservice. You did not rescue us from oppressed lives in Egypt, but you have stolen from us the mountains of meat that we enjoyed while we were still living in Egypt. In other words, if we were to say it today, we would say, God, we know that you've done all of this stuff, but what have you done for me lately? And God, you've shown me the way that you love me and that you take care of me and that you treat me as a perfect father, as a son or a daughter. But you know that? That was yesterday. You need to prove yourself today. God, there's a test today, and we're going to see whether or not you're going to pass. The answer to the question is we trust God because we trust that God knows what He's doing. And then the principle is this. Who we see is more important than what we see. Who we see is more important than what we see. I don't know about you, but it seems that I live surrounded daily by surface evidence that we are alone in an unfriendly universe that's also out of control. 
these people, the sons of Israel, have come to a place of complaint. And Moses looks him straight in the eye and he says to him three things. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and watch God fight for you and deliver you. You know, the people see the chariots. Moses sees God. There's an old quote. I, I, don't even, I couldn't even tell you who said it. But there's an old quote that says, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. Israel has a sea in front of them. He had mountains to the north, has a desert to the south, the most lethal killing machine coming up fast from behind them, and they are terrified. What's left to do? Problem, 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 problem. What's left? Look up. Look up. God's presence brings a calm to our panic. My favorite verse out of all of the Psalms, Psalm 73, verse 28 the nearness of God. That is my good. Let's say that together. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Paul will write to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4. The Lord is what? Near. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. And then that great and that mighty prophet Isaiah, who in his mind, speaking for God, God's given him the words, allusion back to the text we're looking at in Exodus, says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Friends, who we see is more important than what we see. And here's the truth. God doesn't always deliver from problems, but always in problems. Moses says, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. It's an absolute deliverance he's talking about. But the deliverance will be in the presence of chariots and cavalry and troops and lances and shields and bows. Israel leaves Egypt it leaves its slavery and the threat of death from Pharaoh's chariots as it passes through the waters, giving it new birth as a nation, a people chosen by God and redeemed by God to represent Him on the earth. A really strange thing happened in chapter 14. Think back. People are complaining and indicting God. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us all the way out here to die in the desert? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone? The people complained. The people murmur against God. The, the people insult God. Moses comes to God's defense and says... This is who God is, and this is what God will do to all your enemies. But then in verse 15, God rebukes Moses. 
And he says, why are you complaining? Get a move on. Moses takes the rebuke the people deserve. Moses takes the rebuke that the people deserved. I'm reminded of a greater Moses some centuries later in Luke chapter 22. Jesus, who has his own exodus, redeeming people, bringing them out of slavery. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to enter into the process of what God's will for his life means in terms of the cross and his death, his burial and resurrection. And he's in that garden and he's sweating those drops of blood because he sees what it is that he is going to be facing. Could have split, gone, gone east from the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark through the woods. Nobody's going to find him. He prays for the cup to be taken. And Jesus prays that God's will be done more than anything else in his life. Whatever temptations Jesus is going to face in the garden, he refuses to face them outside of the will of God, outside of the presence of God. And God does not abandon his faithful in the middle of the struggle. God does not let the cup pass, even though he's asked. Jesus is not going to be delivered from the crisis. What Jesus receives instead is an angel in the middle of the crisis who strengthens Jesus to keep struggling and to keep suffering. That's the answer to his prayer. Strength to keep struggling and to keep suffering. Deliverance from the human problem is not going to be accomplished by delivering the Christ from the cross. But that deliverance will happen on the cross. When we think about who we are and what we have become and what God has wrought in our lives, it is because there was one who was willing to to pass through that suffering to the other side of it in order for us to follow. I'm going to ask you a very serious question right now. Are you a son or a daughter of God? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth? If you have not followed the Christ in recognition of who He is as our Lord and Savior through the waters of baptism to the other side, redeemed and saved from your greatest enemy, death, and all of those little enemies in between, from lust to meanness to hostility to anger, to, to greed, to all of these things, pass through to the other side to receive a new identity as a child of God, a daughter of God, or a son of God, then we're going to give you the opportunity 
to take care of that this morning with shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about how that might be done. And for the rest of us, how do we see God every day? There's such a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And one of the things that you learn about God is that sometimes the straight line between two points in the kingdom of God is a zigzag. And it's a faith-building exercise, and it's a faith-representing exercise, and it's a faith-presenting life that follows Him because our eyes are on Him and because it's who we see and not what we see. And at the same time, we know that because He's with us and His nearness is our good, and because He is near, we don't have to be anxious about anything. And even when we go through the waters and are threatened to be swept away, He is with us. And on top of that, he's there, not just in those high moments where everything's cool and cozy, but he's there even in the middle of that problem. And that's, that's a deliverance and why we give thanksgiving in all things. Not because everything is great and feels good, but because he's there all the time. If there are ways our church family can minister to you this morning, again, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down as we sing this next song. And let these shepherds know what's on your heart. And for the rest of us that stand, let's praise God together. Let's stand and sing. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its word.